All right, just making sure I have the green light on my microphone this morning. Welcome back. Welcome back to uh, the OPC DFW Reformation Conference 2014. We're very glad to have you here, uh, bright and early on a, on a cool, crisp. Uh, it almost seems like the first day of fall, even though uh, fall has been going on for uh, almost a month. Um, we're glad you're here, uh, and uh, I'm sure we're anticipating more folks showing up uh, over the course of the morning. Um, often in life, it seems that uh, the best ideas take place, they happen over a pint of beer. Uh, for instance, um, uh, the formation of the United States Marine Corps happened over a pint of beer at Tun, Tun Tavern in, in uh, Philadelphia in 10 November 1775. That's drilled into the heads of anybody who's been through boot camp uh, in the Marine Corps. Uh, and, and, and this very conference, uh, it was hatched, the idea of it was hatched over pints of beer at a, at a pub over in Dallas about two and a half years ago when Dr. Truman came down to, to give uh, what was the, the last uh, uh, commencement address for, for Westminster Seminary Dallas uh, when, when Westminster Redeemer sort of uh, parted ways at that point. Uh, he was in town and afterwards we had the opportunity to go out for, for, for beers and, uh, and he volunteered to, to come down at some point in the future and, and, uh, and do a conference for us here. And so that's, uh, so you can thank, I was probably, I probably had a Guinness and I don't, I'm not sure what you drank, Carl, but uh, you can thank uh, <laughs> uh, the, the brewers uh, for, for the way that this uh, came about, this conference came about. We're very thankful that it did and, uh, and hopefully uh, will continue to prove to be uh, beneficial to you, fruitful to you uh, today. Um, let me uh, lead us in prayer, and then uh, the singing last night was was so good. I hadn't hadn't planned on uh, having another hymn, uh, leading in with another hymn today. But the singing was so good. I emailed um, uh, Cheryl this morning and said, "Cheryl, can you please? We, we've got to sing again. It was so good." And uh, so we'll sing a hymn. Let me open us up in prayer. Then we're going to stand and sing a hymn number one hundred, "Holy, Holy, Holy." But let's pray. Our gracious God, we ask once again for your blessing upon us today. We pray for your blessing upon uh, Dr. Truman. We pray, Lord, that, again, you would be glorified, uh, that we would be edified. We pray, Lord, that as we consider more specifically uh, creeds and catechisms this morning, uh, that uh, we would be convinced of their value and their importance. Uh, but most importantly, Lord, we'd be convinced uh, more and more fully of the one to whom they point, to you. So, Lord, help us uh, to have our, our faith strengthened and encouraged. Uh, and, and may our faith in Christ grow. Uh, through uh, the hours of, of conferences this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please stand and turn in your hymnals to hymn number 100, Holy, Holy, Holy.
be seated. Dr. Truman, welcome back. Uh, please come forth. Well, those of you here last night uh, will hopefully remember that I try to make the case for creeds and confessions, arguing that uh, the statement, no creed but the Bible, which enjoys a certain cachet in Protestant and evangelical circles, while it captures something very important and points us to the uh, unique authority of Scripture in terms of theological formulation and church life, uh, yet is also somewhat self-defeating in that I think Scripture itself points us towards the need for uh, something to fulfill the function that we have traditionally now ascribed to creeds and confessions within the church. And this morning I want to, to, to carry that on. In this first lecture I'm going to give a, a brief overview of, of some of the high points of the history of creeds and confessions and then zero in particularly on the Heidelberg Catechism which uh, for those who are suspicious of creeds, or creeds and confessions, whether it's you personally, I, I suspect this audience is somewhat self-selecting if you're suspicious of creeds and confessions, you'll simply have hit the gas when you saw the sign outside and zipped on past to the Bible church down the road. But uh, uh, if, if you have friends uh, who you would like to persuade uh, to take creeds and confessions more seriously, then I think the Heidelberg Catechism is a good place to start because uh, it's quite an easy sell, I think, to people who love their Bibles and uh, love the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the second uh, lecture, I want to talk about very practical advantages that come to the church from having creeds and confessions. But I want to start off uh, this session, before we move to the history of creeds and confessions, by laying a, a biblical foundation, because I think there are certain dynamics that you know, operate within the history of creeds and confessions. And uh, one of them, I think, and, and it's important that we grasp this right at the start, is the the necessary or the inevitable connection between uh, doctrinal formulation that we find in something like the Nicene Creed and Christian praise. And it's uh, often we, we make, often in the, in the Christian culture in which we operate, routine distinctions are made between things that really we shouldn't distinguish between. We're all familiar probably with the statement that uh, Christianity, is it a way of life or a set of doctrines? And the answer, of course, is you know, it's both. We shouldn't really separate those two things out. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, there is a clear statement there about uh, the need for an outward profession, a way of life, if you like, and a doctrinal commitment. And another thing that we sometimes routinely separate is doctrine and praise. Uh, it's not to say that there can't be doctrinal people who seem to have not an ounce of grace in their bodies. Uh, on the other hand, there are those people who talk about praising all the time who seem never to be acquainted with anything approximating sound Christian doctrine. But in Paul's mind, the two things are inextricably linked and they often flow into each other. Uh, think, for example, of uh, 1 Timothy 3, uh, 15 to 17. Uh, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. When what we're talking about last night, I, I see that statement as this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 
as Paul almost certainly referring to a statement that is already circulating in the church. We might say that Paul there is pointing to what appears to be some kind of, we might say, a rule of faith or, or embryonic creed or confession that's circulating in the church. A very simple one. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But notice what Paul does immediately after that. He moves straight on to talk about himself, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul moves from the, the general theological truth, the creedal truth, we might say, to seeing how it applies to him. And then he moves on seamlessly in verse 17 to one of the great New Testament doxologies, to the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. He moves straight from... General doctrine, personal application to doxology. And if you listen to the doxology, the doxology itself has an almost creedal quality to it. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's a beautiful, uh, in just uh, three verses there, Paul weaves together, we might say, a public creedal confession. Uh, a personal testimony and a wonderful piece of doxological praise. And at Westminster, I teach the, the ancient church course. And one of the things I do in the ancient church course is, you know, as a historian, whenever you're asked to teach a period of history, the first critical decision you've got to make is, well, which particular strands of that particular period am I going to focus on? I can't focus on everything, but I need to give coherence to the course in some way by focusing on particular strands. And I choose the strands of early church history that I think are most important. And one of them is the, the strand that deals with the debates and the discussions about the nature of Christ's person and the nature of the Trinity. Culminating, of course, in the, uh, what we call the Nicene Creed that was actually sort of ratified at a council in Constantinople in 381. More strictly, it's the kind of the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381, which many of us will probably recite in our churches at various points. It culminates in the Nicene Creed. And also what we call the Chalcedonian formula of 451 that talks about the person of Christ. And if you look at the, uh, the creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, if you look at the Chalcedonian formula, there's some fairly rarefied language that's used in these creeds. Language that seems a long way away from the more personal uh, language that we find in the Bible. We have language of same substance. And substance is a remarkably abstract term in many ways. We don't find that kind of language in the Bible. I would, if I had time, I would argue that substance captures something very important, an important biblical concept, but it sounds kind of abstract. And if you explore the discussions around the formulation of the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed in 381, much of this discussion seems quite philosophical and abstract. And I think one of the problems we can therefore face when we approach this is, you know, it, it seems remote from everyday life. It seems remote from everyday life. In actual fact, the way I teach the story, if you like, of the Nicene Creed, going right the way back to the beginning of the second century, is this. The church, the discussions that lead to the formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity, to the formulation of the Nicene Creed, to the formulation of the Chalcedonian Creed in 451, the discussions that lead that way are motivated by two things. The early church faces uh, the need to clarify two basic things. 
One, it needs to clarify the cry of praise, Jesus is Lord. Because there are many lords in this world. There are many kings. And the church needs to clarify exactly what it means when it says Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King, as opposed to Caesar is King. There's a definite need, an urgent need for clarifying how that word Lord is being used. And the other thing that the church needs to do is it's got to clarify why Father, Son and Holy Spirit mentioned in baptism? Why Father, Son and Holy Spirit mentioned in baptism? That's a problem. And the church spends the best part of 400 years wrestling really with those two issues. Now, why do I lay that out? Because I want to make the point that however abstract the language that is used in some of the creedal formulations, the concerns are about as basic as you can get. I think there is no more basic a concern for a Christian than understanding what we mean when we sing or pray or cry out, Jesus is Lord. It's the most basic Christian profession. Romans 10, uh, it's the most basic Christian profession there is. And secondly, whether you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian here today, one thing we can agree on, I think, is there is no more basic act in the Christian life than baptism. And baptism is inextricably connected to the threefold name. So understanding the threefold name becomes absolutely critical. So the first point I want to make uh, this morning is, is sometimes these creeds and confessions in the ancient church particularly can seem abstract. They can seem remote from everyday life, but their concerns are profoundly practical. I'm going to use uh, one of the anecdotes I give, and unfortunately the, the theologian I'm citing here is not one that you'll find in, in the sort of the pantheon of reformed orthodox grades, but the point that he's making is a sound and orthodox one. One of the, uh, the most important uh, uh, theologians of the 20th century is a man called Thomas F. Torrance. Uh, he was a Scottish theologian, taught for many years at the University of Edinburgh. But before he became professor of dogmatics at Edinburgh, he was uh, a chaplain in the Second World War in the Italian theatre. And I can't remember exactly which battle it was. It may well have been Monte Cassino. But... Uh, Torrance is, 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 is on the battlefield and there are people being shot and being killed all around him and he's ministering to these people as they die and he recalls, he recounts an anecdote of uh, kneeling by the side of a young man who's been hit and he's reading the Bible and he's praying with this young man and he knows this young man's dying, there's no way they're going to get him off the battlefield and he's going to survive and uh, the young man looks at him and says if I know Jesus, do I know God? And Torrance says to him, yes, if you know Jesus, you know God. And then he prays with this young man, and Torrance said, when he opened his eyes from praying, the, the man had gone. He'd gone into eternity. Uh, he died at that point. It's a touching and a moving anecdote. Thankfully, very few of us minister uh, in the kind of situations where, you know, he presumably ministered to dozens of men who died that, that very day. Torrance could not have made that statement if the Nicene Creed had not been formulated the way it is. If uh, in, in the 360s there were those who wanted to say that, that Jesus Christ was of like substance to the Father. Well, if Jesus is of like substance to the Father, he's not of the same substance as the Father. 
Now, my wife is an identical twin, and we use, you know, you use the word identical in some way, somewhat equivocally, don't we, when we talk about twins. She has identical DNA to her sister, but she doesn't have the same fingerprints. I believe fingerprints are sort of random construction. So she has different fingers. So she's not quite identical. In other words, she's not the same as her sister. She's actually different. She's of similar substance, but that really tells me that she's different. She's not the same. If the man pushing in the 360s for God and Christ to be of similar substance to the Father, then all Torrance could have said that day on the battlefield was, well, no, if you know Jesus, you know somebody who's kind of like God. But how like God he is, we don't really know. In other words, he might be very different to God indeed. So the first point I want to make is, the, is there is a very practical dimension to creeds and confessions. In the early church, they arise out of the need for the church to make sense of baptism and uh, the cry that Jesus is Lord. And secondly, there are some very obvious practical payoffs to something like the Nicene Creed. Uh, there you see it on the battlefield that day, you know, in the Italian theatre of the Second World War, the Nicene Creed, the way it clarifies uh, what Scripture says and summarises beautifully what Scripture says, was of incredible, practical, pastoral importance that day. I use that anecdote at Westminster to sort of say to students who say, if you're not interested in learning theology, then you're going to put yourself as a tremendous disadvantage in the practical world, because so much of this has direct practical significance. So that's uh, confession as, as praise then. I want to now just give a, a brief, very brief overview of the history of creeds and confessions and as I say come to zero in on the Heidelberg Catechism. In the ancient church there are a number of, uh, of creeds well worth looking at. Uh, perhaps the most common and the most famous might be the Apostles' Creed. Many of you in your churches may well recite the Apostles' Creed. I think it's on the back of the T-shirts in a slightly modified form. Uh, we noticed there was one important clause, uh, controversial clause, missing from the T-shirts the on Friday where it says that Jesus Christ descended into hell. It's been a, a contentious clause over the years. But essentially, if you've got that T-shirt, you've, you, you know, you've basically got the Apostles' Creed. Uh, 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 the name is misleading. Certainly in the 16th and 17th century, we go back to the Reformers and the Puritans, they typically thought the Apostles wrote the Apostles' Creed, or somebody very close to the Apostles. In actual fact, it doesn't really pop up until about the 4th century, uh, possibly even after the, the Nicene Creed. So it's, it's a much later creed in many ways. Uh, but it's a beautiful summary of, uh, uh, of the Christian faith. It's not, I think, fully adequate in and of itself. It doesn't cover all the bases one would want covered in a church's confession. But it's a, a great way of, uh, of confessing the faith. Many churches use it as part of their liturgy on a, a regular basis for all Christians in the church to stand up and recite their faith. And in doing so, they of course are identifying with Christians not only throughout the ages but also across the world uh, today. I gave this uh, a version of this lecture in Ireland uh, a couple of years ago and a student stood up and said, yeah, but doesn't it lead to formalism when you're just reading out... Uh, uh, man-made words, you're just reading them out and, and it can lead to, to formalism and I said well uh, do you sing hymns and he said yeah and I said well they're man-made words uh, so is it the fact that you don't 
we don't have a tune for the Apostles' Creed. Is it the tune that's the problem? Is that what makes us into formalists? And he sat down and laughed at that point. I think he realised he'd sort of painted himself into a corner. But certainly uh, the, 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 the reciting of the Apostles' Creed is, is a, a wonderful uh, an appropriately ecumenical gesture and has been part of the church's testimony for hundreds of years. Other ancient creeds, we have the Nicene Creed, which was probably uh, uh, first, uh, the, sort of the bare bones of it were put together in 325 at the Council of Nicaea in order to combat those who were saying that Jesus was less than God. It represents the culmination of several hundred years of, of wrestling with the identity of the Son relative to the Father. And for the, the uh, nearly 60 years after the Nicene uh, Council of 325, the church is, is in tremendous struggles to formulate, to find a language that can capture uh, the, the doctrine of Christ, and finally uh, comes to a conclusion at the uh, Council of Constantinople in 381, where, I don't think it's written there, but where is ratified what we now call the Nicene Creed. And if you recite the Nicene Creed in your church uh, on a Sunday occasion, you're reciting a creed that was basically put together, ratified in, in 381. Uh, there was an addition to it a little bit later in the West, uh, the, the, the procession of the Holy Spirit from uh, Father and the Son. We call it the filioque clause. It becomes a bone of contention between Eastern and Western churches. But in many ways, the Nicene Creed is like a more thorough Apostles' Creed, which is specifically addressing the matter of Trinitarianism. And one of the... I remember a few years ago uh, taking a group of Westminster students, some of whom were thinking of converting to Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, to an Eastern Orthodox church. They'd approached me and said, uh, you know, what do you think about Eastern Orthodoxy? And I thought, well, there are two ways of approaching this. I could sit down, I could talk for hours and hours and hours with them, trying to persuade them that uh, while there are some good things about Eastern Orthodoxy, they really don't want to go there. Uh, or I could take them to uh, an Eastern Orthodox church, you know, and after they've stood for an hour and a half listening to uh, some guy chanting ancient Greek, uh, they may well find it less attractive than they, they did beforehand. And so I opted for the second option. Lo and behold, uh, they, nobody converted to Eastern Orthodoxy or has done so thus far. Uh, but what, after we'd been there, and the priest was very generous, he gave us an hour of his time afterwards where we just sat around and asked him, he just took any questions we wanted to ask about Eastern Orthodoxy. And afterwards I took the students out for lunch and I asked them, uh, you know, what was, what was good, what was bad, what do you like, what, what made you uncomfortable? Um, on, the, on the good side, they commented that more scripture was read in an Eastern Orthodox church than is typical in a Protestant church, which I thought was very interesting, in that we make a great play about being scripture people, but actually uh, other traditions, ironically, uh, can read more scripture in a service than we typically do. And the other thing they said uh, was that it was obviously Trinitarian. The guy kept talking about the Trinity all the time. And Trinity is a big thing in Eastern Orthodoxy. And it led to the question, you know, how can we make our own worship more Trinitarian? And one of the obvious answers is embody some of the great Trinitarian statements of the church into worship on a Sunday. And the Nicene Creed is perhaps the most obvious place to start because that is where the church really laid out or really formulated uh, a language for expressing the biblical concept of the Trinity. Uh, the 5th century, the Chalcedonian formula, if you haven't seen it, look it up on the internet. It's, it's not the kind of thing that necessarily you want to read in church on a Sunday, but it lays out beautifully the boundaries 
for discussing uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, that when you think about Christ, we mustn't think about him in such a way that we confuse his divinity and his humanity. Nor must we think about him in such a way that we so separate those two things, that it's as if we've got two persons occupying one piece of space. Fifth century also produced the Athanasian Creed. Uh, it's a scribe to the great 4th century theologian Athanasius, but it's a Latin creed and it relies on theology that wasn't formulated until after Athanasius died. Uh, Roman Catholic theologian Thomas Guarino has recently made quite a compelling case for, for it to have been written by a man called Vincent of Lerins uh, in the 5th century, but we just don't know. Uh, I suspect the Athanasian Creed will appeal to the, the OPC and the, the Reformed Baptists among us because there are a couple of anathemas in it. Uh, you don't often get a creed with an anathema, but not only are you proclaiming God's praise, but you're cursing the people who reject it as well. So it has that sort of edge to it that I think will appeal to the, the more militant strands among us. So those are the ancient church creeds. And when we come to uh, the Reformation, an era that perhaps we are also even more interested in maybe, the Reformation produces some, some great creedal statements. I mentioned last night uh, James Dennison's four volumes, magnificent accomplishment. He's collecting together four volumes of Reformation creeds, uh, confessions and catechisms. There are a lot of them out there. One of the reasons is that in the Reformation, of course, theology is also politics. That what you see in the 16th century is not only the birth of the Protestant church, but we also see the birth of what we call the confessional state in that states defined themselves by their confession. That's weird to us now. It's hard to imagine forging uh, alliances, having foreign policy dictated by details of confession. But it often happened in the 16th century. Uh, those of you who know about Geneva will know that John Calvin wanted, he wanted communion every week, but he had to have it every quarter. He could only get the town council to agree to having it every quarter. And the reason was Geneva was a city of very little military strength, very little military strength. And it was in the shadow of the Catholic House of Savoy. And at the Reformation, the Duke of Savoy is, uh, the, the, the Savoyards are essentially thrown out, the Catholic Church is thrown out. But for decades after that, the House of Savoy wanted to retake Geneva for the Catholic faith. And so the Genevans needed a military alliance with a more powerful uh, military uh, state. And the city of Bern was the obvious choice. So it forged an alliance with the Bernese. And the Bernese had communion four times a year. So Geneva had to have communion four times a year. It's weird. It's weird in sort of First Amendment world, if you like, or just the world of late modernity, to think that people thought like that. But they did. So there's a strong political aspect to creeds and confessions in the 16th century, which leads to a production of an awful lot of them, because every state wanted its creedal confessional statement so that other states could look to them and say, okay, these are people we can do business with, or these are people we can't do business with. The birth of the confessional state. Within that context, I think certain confessions uh, emerge historically as more important than others. Perhaps the, the, the most supremely important set of, uh, uh, set of uh, confessions from the Reformation is the Lutheran Book of Concord. Uh, if you buy, you get a copy free online, you buy a copy from uh, Concordia Press or Fortress Press. I recommend that uh, if you're interested in creeds and confessions, you really need the Book of Concord. There's a lot of it there that if you're a Reformed person or a Baptist person, 
maybe won't make, even make sense to you because it's dealing with specific internal Lutheran debates. But it contains some beautiful documents. The Augsburg Confession, the equivalent of the Westminster Confession for Lutherans is there. If you get a good edition of the Book of Concord, it occurs in two forms, the 1530 form and the 1544. 1540 form is known as the Variata or the Varied Version because it waters down the Lutheran teaching on the Lord's Supper a bit. That was the one that Calvin subscribed. Perhaps uh, my favourite document from the Book of Concord is, is Luther's Small Catechism. Small Catechism is, uh, we'll talk about catechisms a bit later when we talk about the, the Heidelberg, uh, but uh, Luther wrote the Small Catechism, 1527-1528, uh, as a result of having had a, a visitation done of all the churches. And when the, the results came back from the visitation, Luther's comment was, the people live like pigs. We've had all this good preaching for, for six, seven, eight years now, and the people live like pigs. We need to think harder about how we teach people. And one of the things that Luther did was he produced two catechisms, a small catechism and a great catechism. The great catechism is, is not really like any catechism you'll ever have read. It's almost a collection of sermons, topically arranged. And the great catechism was really for ignorant clergy to have something good to give to their people on a Sunday morning. Uh, we often have very romantic views of the Reformation. We think the Reformation comes in and sweeps all before it. It was much harder. It was much harder on the ground. Now think of Europe in 1989 when the Iron Curtain uh, finally falls. Yes, the, the top guys all disappear. Honecker, Ceausescu, etc. They're all swept away. But the middle guys, they have to stay in place. Otherwise you have to complete anarchy. You've got to have civil servants. You've got to have local functionaries. You can't just get rid of everybody because you need somebody to replace them with. And the Reformation was like that. When the Reformation swept into town, it wasn't that the local priest was dismissed and replaced with a Protestant pastor. It was that the local priest became a Protestant pastor. And generally speaking, a pretty ignorant one of that. That's why ministerial training was such a big deal in the Reformation because they've got to produce these guys to fill pulpits. And what do you do with the ignorant but well-meaning guys already in the pulpits? Well, you give them printed sermons and larger catechisms for them to use or homilies so that they're not teaching people garbage. These days, hopefully you fire your pastor if he's downloading something off the internet just reading to his people. In those days, it was a good thing because it curtailed the teaching of heresy and error by providing ignorant pastors with that kind of thing. So Luther's great catechism is like that. What really interests me is his small catechism. And the small catechism is interesting. When you read it, it has a delightful pedagogical quality. And the reason is this, if you think about it. Luther is the first man who writes a question and answer catechism in the history of the church who'd first been a parent. Luther was married with a child by the time he wrote the small catechism. And there is a parent-teaching child-like quality about the small catechism. Um, you know, if, if you have children, you go out and you, want, you, know, you go for a walk in the park when they're very small, they'll point the finger up and say, you know, what is that? And you'll say, well, that's a bird. And, you know, the next question is, well, what does a bird do? You know how the questions go, how the mind works. If you read Luther's Catechism, it's like that. It's, what is that? What does that do? There is this wonderful pedagogical quality 
to Luther's small catechism. So I would commend you the Book of Concord. You get it free on the internet. Very neglected often in, uh, you know, we honor Luther in, in Reformed and Baptist circles as a great figurehead, but often we don't read, you know, beyond the bondage of the will, we don't read too much of it. But I would suggest, get hold of the, of the small catechism. If nothing else, it is a beautiful example of uh, limpid simplicity in Christian teaching. Book of Concord contains uh, other, other works, uh, um, a treatise, not, uh, uh, among other things, a treatise on the Pope as Antichrist. Uh, you've got to love a confessional, a set of confessional documents that contains a book with that kind of title. Uh, it wasn't actually written by Luther, it was written by, by Melanchthon, but it's a, it's, a, it's a fun thing to read. Other Reformation creeds and, and confessions, well we have, uh, uh, of course, the, um, uh, the three forms of unity. Uh, written over a, a period of time, um, uh, the Belgic Confession, uh, 1561, written by a man called Guy de Bray, who was later martyred for his faith, the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563, and the Canons of Dort in 1619. Collectively known as the three forms of unity, they form the doctrinal standard of Reformed churches that look to Dutch and German uh, origins. Uh, so say the Belgian Confession was the work of a single man, uh, later martyred for his faith. The Heidelberg Catechism, we'll talk about it in a bit more detail in a few minutes. That was probably the work, or primarily the work, of a single man as well. Uh, and the third confessional standard, the, the Canons of Dort, were very specifically targeted at uh, a series of statements that had been produced by the Arminian party uh, in Holland. So the three forms of unity, uh, they're, they're the, the Dutch or the German reformed equivalent in many ways of the Westminster standards. Another great uh, uh, set of, of confessions, um, the, uh, the Anglican 39 Articles. 39 articles uh, produced uh, as, as part of the Anglican Reformation. Uh, the Anglican Reformation is very interesting for a number of reasons, uh, primarily because it's driven from the top down. It's very much uh, a, a prince's reformation. The 39 articles are a, a great statement of the Reformation faith uh, in the, uh, the 15, I think 1559, 1560s. Um, they proved contentious over the years, mainly because Cardinal Newman in the 19th century argued that they were susceptible to a sort of old Catholic interpretation. And he presented the Anglican articles as a middle way between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Uh, in actual fact, I think the, the Anglican articles are a middle way. They're a middle way between Roman Catholicism and Anabaptism, and it's called Reformed Theology. So they do occupy a, an interesting uh, place. Anglican, the Anglican articles have not had a great influence, I think, within the, the, the more strictly reformed world for a number of reasons. Uh, and one of those reasons is that Anglicanism was never so profoundly shaped by its confession as it was by its liturgy. It's the liturgy of uh, Anglicanism that is uh, so affecting uh, in, in many ways. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer shaped the ethos of uh, Anglican theology and worship in a way that the Articles never did. Uh, and one of the things I recommend to, to students at Westminster is that they get hold of a, a copy of uh, the Book of Common Prayer because reading the collects and the prayers there helps to shape the kind of language you use in public prayer. 
I'm a good enough uh, English Puritan to absolutely despise people who need to write their prayers out on a Sunday. If you're a minister and you can't pray extemporaneously, you shouldn't be a minister as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, if, if you can't speak coherently, then maybe you should write them out and, and you can find no better models than the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, so the Anglican articles, the Heidelberg Catechism, we're going to come back to that uh, in a couple of moments. Um, the Irish articles, if you've never looked at the Irish articles of 1615, they're worth checking out. Again, you'll find them on the internet. By the time we get to the beginning of the 17th century, uh, the Irish Episcopalian Church is beginning to flex its muscles and want to distinguish itself somewhat from the Anglican Church in England. And a man called Archbishop Usher, who was a great Reformed theologian, uh, put together a series of articles with a view to replacing the 39 articles within the Irish Episcopal Church. Uh, the Irish articles are significant, I think, for the first time that uh, the Covenant of Works, which is a very important Reformed doctrine, as you know, the Irish articles are, I think, the first confessional statement that uses the language of Covenant of Works, at the start of the 17th century. They never receive any kind of official imprimatur, so they never have any official status, but they're very important. So they're very important, if for nothing else, that they provide a backdrop to the Westminster standards, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the catechisms produced uh, in 60, well, from 1643 onwards, the sitting of the Westminster uh, Assembly. Westminster Assembly is called to really to revise the liturgy and the articles of the Anglican Church. As uh, Parliament uh, is descending into civil war with the King, it becomes necessary to forge a political military alliance with the Scots. So the Scots are brought in to the English Civil War under the terms of the Solemn League and, uh, and Covenant, and that allows them to send certain non-voting delegates to the Westminster Assembly, and everything changes when the Scots arrive, mainly because they bring significant intellectual firepower. They are, if you like, a set of alpha males who arrive at the uh, Westminster Assembly, uh, men like George Gillespie and Samuel Rutherford, who were extremely agile and able people. If you ever read Gillespie's stuff, uh, you know, in his late 20s and early 30s, he's already writing uh, documents that are quoting the rabbis from memory. Uh, I get students to read some of his stuff sometimes, and then I say to you, do you know how old he was uh, when he wrote this? And I point out that he's five, six, seven years younger than most of the people in the class uh, who are struggling to pass uh, an MDiv. Uh, so, the Westminster Standards, uh, Confession and Catechisms, uh, put together by the Westminster Assembly. Ironically, one of the most important documents of the Westminster Assembly, I think, is the one that is generally forgotten about these days, and that's the Directory for Public Worship. Uh, because uh, the heart of the Westminster Assembly was a concern for uh, getting rid of what were seen as, as long-running problems within the Anglican liturgy kneeling at communion, things like that. So it's ironic in some ways that as, uh, as the Westminster Assembly has moved through history, one of the documents that they would have considered to be most important has actually dropped out of, uh, out of church life in general. And then finally, I know there are a number of Baptists here, of course, there's the Second London Confession of 1689. Uh, I think from my limited knowledge of, of Baptist confessions, it certainly seems to me to be the greatest. Uh, it's heavily derivative at points on the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, but it is, uh, it's a remarkably thorough Baptist statement of faith 
in and of itself. So that's just a trolleybus tour then of the kind of creeds and confessions being put together at the Reformation. And I mentioned last night, that should cause us to qualify how we understand the, the rallying cry of Scripture alone. When the Reformers talk about, uh, about Scripture as the sole authority, what they mean is it's the sole ultimate authority. It's the norming norm, if you like, of every theological statement. They did not see Scripture any more than I think Paul saw Scripture as negating the need for forms of sound words. Uh, their very actions demonstrate both their respect for church tradition and their desire to preserve the faith by the production of clear and relatively comprehensive statements of biblical teaching. Heidelberg Catechism. I want to start by reading uh, a section from an email uh, I received just this week, and I thought this is, is very apposite. When I'm going to, to uh, a conference to try to uh, encourage people to be, uh, to be promoting creeds and confessions, I had this wonderful email that just reminded me of how practical these things are. And this comes from a young man who was, he was visiting Westminster a few weeks ago as a potential prospective, prospective student. So I, I sat by him at the student lunch and we got talking, and uh, uh, we got talking about the usefulness of creeds and confessions. And uh, he went away, and then he wrote me this this week, and I quote, I was talking to my co-worker about how, oh sorry, uh, he's making a comment about me there, that I should, probably should be about how rude I was. But anyway, uh, <laughs> well actually I'll read it. I was talking to my co-worker about how I was amused at how you do not mince your words, uh, uh, saying indeed anybody who thinks that Protestant confessionalism is a hard dry creed needs to read the Heidelberg Catechism. Only the willfully stupid or deluded could possibly dismiss such a document along such lines. I, can, I, have, I have no recollection of saying that, but he says it's on page 125 of my book, so uh, uh, maybe my ghostwriter put it in. Yes, uh, uh, later, uh, he said, my co-worker asked me out of curiosity whether or not I thought someone who was terminally ill and committed suicide is saved. I simply read out loud the passage you had quoted from the Heidelberg Catechism, question one, on assurance of salvation. What is your only comfort in life and death, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. And from the quotation from the Heidelberg Catechism, continue with the email. Uh, she left the room in tears. Later, she asked if I wouldn't mind copying it for her. So I did with the proof text in the NIV. While I was leading a small group discussion on the Bible as canon and incorporating the handout I made on the catechism, I received this message on my phone. Thank you for sharing your wisdom with me today. Do you realize you wiped away 27 years of heartache, pain and a constant questioning of what I believe to be true versus what I wanted to believe to be true? I thoroughly enjoy working with you and learning things from you and I appreciate your willingness to dumb it down for me when I don't quite get it. Uh, I was honestly taken aback, the, the guy says, the creeds today are relevant and needed. Wiped away 27 years of heartache. That's a hard thing to, to imagine. Great example, though, of how creeds and confessions speak directly today because they summarize so much of the teaching of Scripture. Well, here's a little bit more detail on the background of the Heidelberg Catechism. As I say, this is the one that's uh, probably the best one to sell to people who may be skeptical. 
It's written in the 1560s. The 1560s, the great era of Protestant confessions. Why? Well, because of the Council of Trent. The Catholic Church had uh, pulled together a Council of Trent that met over many years. Uh, and uh, the, the Roman Catholic Church had defined itself very clearly on certain doctrines. Protestants find it hard to imagine, but it was actually impossible for Luther to be uh, heretical directly on justification by faith uh, in the 1520s because the church had no position on justification by faith. It was the implications of Luther's doctrine for authority that got him into trouble. The church didn't know what it believed about justification. By the 1560s, it does. And that leads uh, Protestants now, they have something they can define themselves over against. So in the 1560s, we have a lot of confessions being written. Uh, the Scots Confession, the Belgic Confession, the Second Helvetic Confession, uh, the 39 Articles. Uh, remember, as I said earlier, confessions are like political manifestos. Uh, they identify where political allegiances can be made in the 16th century. We'll also ask about the catechism. Why? Why a catechism? Well, catechesis has a, a long and hallowed history in the church. From very early on, we hear about uh, catechumens in the church, and by and large, they were people being taught forms of sound words. Question and answer catechism seem to emerge in about the 11th century. They're, they're relatively late. Uh, a guy called Bruno of Würzburg. Uh, the only thing I know about him is he, he seems to be the first man who produces a question and answer catechism. He publishes one in 1045. So relatively late development. And medieval catechisms contained four basic elements. The Apostles' Creed, uh, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and a section on the sacraments, the Church and the sacraments. And Protestants build basically on that model. It's a good model. It's the same sort of model you'll find in Luther's catechisms. You'll find it in the Heidelberg Catechism. By the time we get to the 1560s, the production of question-answer catechisms was something of an industry in Protestantism. Martin Luther had produced uh, his small one, and even his large one is set up as question-answer, even though the answers are incredibly long and elaborate. Martin Bucer, uh, the great reformer of Strasbourg, had produced a catechism for the Strasbourg church. The Genevan catechism had been produced in 1541 and 1545. Heinrich Bullinger, Zwingli's great successor in Zurich, had produced his catechism for adults in 1559. Catechisms were produced because it was felt important that the people needed to be taught the topics that were basic to the Christian life. They were not considered to be exhaustive statements, but they were produced in order to provide teaching models for Christian believers. As Luther discovers in 1527, 1528, it's not enough to preach. Simply preaching to people, they go away and live like pigs, he says. We need something else to supplement the teaching, to give a framework for understanding the preaching. And that's why catechisms are produced. So we have, why the 1560s? Why a catechism? Why a catechism at Heidelberg? Heidelberg was an important city. If you go to Germany, it's one of the cities you must visit. Not only is it, is it the site of one of Luther's great early moments, the so-called Heidelberg Disputation. They've demolished the building it took place in, but there's actually a paving stone with a, like a Hollywood star on it that you can sort of stand on, where Luther apparently you know, articulated his notion of the theologian of the cross in 1518. I stood on that square and I, uh, you know, I could feel the power kind of pulsating through my, my veins. You know, I think the Eastern Orthodox are onto something when sometimes you know, some places just feel holier than others somehow. 
It's a beautiful city. It's very well preserved. It was not bombed in the Second World War. It's a, it's a beautiful city well worth visiting. It was a peculiarly important city in the 16th century because uh, the, the central column of mainland Europe uh, was governed by the Holy Roman Empire, which dates, you know, goes back to Charlemagne. And the Holy Roman Empire was governed, guess what, by an emperor. But the, uh, the emperor was not... You know, you didn't become the emperor because you were the son of the emperor. It was not as automatic as that. The emperor was elected, uh, but the franchise for elections was pretty narrow. There were only seven guys who had a vote, the seven electors of the empire. And Heidelberg stands at the center of what was called the Palatinate. And the Palatinate was home to the Elector Palatine. And the Elector Palatine was the most powerful of the seven electors, the most important of the seven electors. So it's a peculiarly uh, important uh, city. And in 1559, the Elector Palatine, uh, the man who succeeds his father, is Elector Palatine, is a man called Frederick III. And Frederick III is theologically very well informed. And he's a Lutheran, but he's what we call a, he's a sort of moderate Lutheran. After Luther dies, uh, as, as Reformed theology you know, splits into its Arminian and, and Reformed camp, uh, Lutheranism, after the Luther, death of Luther, split into what was known as the Genesio Lutheran camp, the real Lutherans, the true Lutherans, the hardcore followers of Dr. Martin, and the Philippists, the followers of Luther's close friend and, uh, and colleague, Philip Melanchthon. And Melanchthon was a much milder Lutheran. Good friend of Calvin, he was the man who wrote the, I mentioned earlier, the Variata of the Augsburg Confession. So he sort of watered down the Lutheran teaching on the Lord's Supper a bit. Frederick III is a, is a big Philippist, he's a big fan of Melanchthon. And uh, over the next uh, uh, few months after he's uh, uh, become elector, a number of great debates take place at the university between the Philippists and the Genesio Lutherans and, and the Reformed. And Frederick III is converted to the Reformed faith. Uh, you know, we, we use conversion these days to talk about somebody from you know, moving, being a non-Christian to being a Christian, but in the, 16th, in the Middle Ages, conversion was when you joined a monastery. In the 16th century, really, conversion is when you move from one confessional commitment to another. Frederick III becomes Reformed, and he wants to produce a confessional standard for the Palatinum. But he's also, he loves his, his Melanchthonian, his Philippist friends. So what Frederick III wants to do is to produce a catechism which both the Reformed and the followers of Melanchthon can sign up to. He's not so keen on the Genesio Lutherans, the sort of political struggles going on at the university, and he wants to get those guys out. But what he wants is to produce a catechism which both the Philippists and the Reformed can sign up to. And he commissions a committee to do this. The key figures on the committee were two men, Zacharias Asinus and Caspar Alevianus. And of the two of them, Asinus is the man who puts, seems to be the, the guiding hand behind the catechism. But the context is very important uh, for a couple of reasons. The catechism has this strongly pastoral tone why is that? Frederick instructs these men to avoid too much polemic because he intends it as an ecumenical document in the 16th century context in that both the moderate Lutherans and the Reformed have got to be able to sign up to it. 
So you'll notice, for example, if you read the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, one uh, key doctrine uh, of, of great importance to the Reformed is uh, notice of absent predestination. There's no predestination in the Heidelberg Catechism because the followers of Philip were very iffy about predestination. They didn't think it, if they, if they believed it, they certainly didn't think it should be taught. So predestination is absent from the Heidelberg Catechism because Frederick needed everybody to sign on to it. Frederick, uh, uh, we must remember that ecumenical, people say the Heidelberg Catechism is an ecumenical uh, catechism, and certainly it is, but it's ecumenism in the 16th century sense of the word. Frederick still insisted, he actually insisted personally that a uh, question 80 was inserted at his instruction, uh, and that deals with the abomination of the mass. So it's sort of ecumenical, but within fairly uh, strictly circumscribed boundaries. He also, Frederick, wrote uh, an introduction to it in which he lays out what it's for. He says, the catechism is for this reason. It is in order not only that the youth in churches and schools may be piously instructed in such Christian doctrine and be thoroughly trained therein, but also that the pastors and schoolmasters themselves may be provided with a fixed form and model by which to re regulate the instruction of youth and not at their option adopt daily changes or introduce erroneous doctrines. So the catechism, it's a catechetical tool for children, but it's also a form of confessional unity. Again, go back to the 16th century. If you want to hold your society together in a unified way, everybody has to sign up to the same confession. It's weird for us to think that way. We build unity in some way on diversity now. But unity was built on a kind of enforced unity in the 16th century. It's a couple of comments about the structure of the catechism uh, of interest. It's, it's typically given a threefold structure. The first, uh, the first is a brief introduction, two questions. Then we have a section on misery, the misery of humankind. Then we have a section on grace. And we have a section on gratitude. We have the problem, the God's solution to the problem, and then our response to God's solution to the problem. Just as uh, one observation, important observation, the structure itself is didactic. The structure itself is theologically significant. The church is placed in the second section on grace. And that's a reminder, of course, that the church is something that God does, not something we do. The church is not a response to God's grace. The church is an act of God's grace. And I, I think one of the... You know, when we look around the church today, I suspect that 90% of the erroneous thinking on the church could be cleaned up like that if people start with the premise that the church is actually God's action, not a human response. It kind of changes everything when you think about it in that way. You know, Colossians clearly teaches that. Christ is head of the church, he's head of creation. Well, creation is not a response to God. Creation is an act of God. The church is an act of new creation. And the Heidelberg Catechism is very carefully structured to locate the church in that section. Second distinctive of the Heidelberg Catechism, it has a very personal tone. It uses the first person throughout. Uh, if you read the Westminster Shorter Catechism or Larger Catechism, in many ways they're more thorough documents, more precise documents. But they lack that effective first person aspect to them. There is a beauty to the personal dimension of the Heidelberg Catechism. I remember a colleague of mine, uh, Mike Kelly, 
teaches Old Testament at Westminster, telling me about the, the first day he'd sent his kids to a Christian school that they didn't graduate from in the end, uh, down in the city of Philadelphia. And uh, at the end of the day, the teacher had had an altar call. Uh, you know, any kids today who've trusted in Jesus Christ, come on down the front. And Mike told me that the whole class went down the front, except for his son, who stayed sitting. And, uh, and the teacher said to him, don't you have a testimony? Uh, and his son stood up and recited Heidelberg Catechism question one. And said, that's my testimony. Uh, so it has a wonderfully effective aspect to it. I think it's a very teachable catechism from that perspective. And not, I think not only is the first question beautiful, I think the last question of the catechism is very beautiful as well. And I've quoted this in sermons more often than I care to remember. Question 129, which is talking about the end of the Lord's Prayer. What does that little word Amen express? Amen means this is sure to be. And then you have this beautiful phrase, it is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. That's a breathtaking statement. It's really, it, is, it is even more sure that God listens to my prayer than that I really desire what I pray for. It doesn't get more theological and more practical than that. I think it's an amazing uh, statement. Final comment, uh, just on the history of the Catechism. and uh, uh, By the Church Order of 1563, uh, it was divided into 52 Lord's Days. Uh, those of you who are in or have grown up in... Uh, uh, a Dutch Reformed or German Reformed tradition will know that it's typically the tradition uh, to teach through the catechism in the afternoon or the evening service. Um, it's that we can romanticise that. It's led to some uh, interesting. We, there are many diaries from the 17th and 18th century in Holland that talk about the, the laziness of the minister that they recognise he preached exactly the same sermon this year on this question as he did last year and how boring it is. Uh, I do wonder if in in this particular day and age, uh, there is a need for catechetical preaching again, at least in some sort of limited variety, on the grounds that uh, the move to, to expository preaching is great, but populations of people are so fluid these days that you know, you're just not typically going to have somebody in your congregation for 30, 35 years. So how do you teach the whole counsel of God? Well, the Heidelberg Catechism at least provides a model for getting the, the basic framework of the whole Council of God out on an annual basis. Uh, so it's, it's worth thinking about that. It's also, just as an aside, you know, what, what is our answer to, to growing biblical illiteracy? Uh, we, we get rid of evening services and we don't attend them. So you know, the more biblically illiterate our people are, the, 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 the answer is well, let's give them less Bible and less church. There seems to be a logical flaw uh, in that approach. Uh, because, of course, if you don't have an evening service, then catechetical preaching is certainly not going to be an option because you've got to preach the Bible. Uh, but if you have two services, uh, then you do have the option at points of doing thematic series, I think, without disrupting uh, expository series in a way that achieve that which the Heidelberg Catechism was attempting to achieve. So then, just to briefly summarize this lecture, First point, uh, creeds and confessions arise out of the need for the church to understand its praise. Baptism, Jesus is Lord. That's why the early church gets embroiled in the Christological and Trinitarian debates. Uh, that's why we must not lose uh, sight of the very practical significance of something like the Nicene Creed. And the anecdote I gave you of T.F. Torrance at, uh, in the Italian theatre of the Second World War hopefully underlines that. We move to the... Uh, 
the, the Reformation. Creeds and confessions become politically important, but also there is so much there, I think, that we can still mine today for ecclesiastical and pastoral significance, much of which I will try to uh, elaborate in the final lecture. Which is it? Eleven o'clock? Is that? Is that Joe? So, do you want to? Do you want me to break us, or are you gonna? Okay. Thanks, Carl. We are. We've been going through the Heidelberg Catechism in our evening service, and uh, but I, we have we have, haven't even talked about that. Uh, I didn't pay Carl to say anything that he said or anything like that. He just he said it of his own uh, own free will there. But uh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, we are on break now for the next thirty minutes. Uh, we'll reconvene here at eleven a.m. Uh, so go. Um, we we don't want to have to ship any books back to Philadelphia, um, and we and I think we're down to uh, the creedal imperative and. And if, if, if you don't buy all the little booklets, that's okay. We'll stick them out on our table at some point. But the creedal, we want to we sell all those. Uh, so, so go buy books, buy T-shirts, and get coffee and snacks and things like that, and be back in here at, at about 11 o'clock.